Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast, our first episode recorded in 2020. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and Alan Ginchel, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Happy New Year, Alan. And Happy New Year to you too, Darren. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's Tuesday the 7th of January, and today we plan to continue the practice we began around this time last year of looking back over the previous 12 months. However, we cannot avoid the news, and so we are going to begin today by discussing two recent stories. First, the horrific and profoundly tragic bushfires that have really brought Australia's experience with climate change to the attention of the world. And then, President Donald Trump's decision to assassinate a senior Iranian general. Then, we will look back over 2019, first by each nominating our word of the year, and then what we saw as one of the most notable trends of the year. And then we'll finish by looking ahead to 2020. Alan, let's begin with the Australian bushfires, which would normally not be something one discussed on a podcast devoted to foreign policy and international affairs. But I'll assume our listeners are familiar, and I'm sure many are too familiar, with the tragedy that has been occurring across Australia. So let me skip straight to a couple of angles from the international perspective. First, I've personally been struck by the level of support and generosity shown by the international community. To cite a few examples, New Zealand has already sent firefighters and troops. The US sent a team of Californian firefighters. Vanuatu has offered almost a quarter of a million dollars to assist those affected. And Papua New Guinea has offered a 1,000 personnel, including soldiers and firefighters, and said that they were setting up a fire appeal secretariat with PM James Marape as the patron to oversee fundraising. French President Emmanuel Macron has offered aid. And of course, you have private individuals and organisations from across the world that have made their own contributions or coordinated fundraising efforts. So, Alan, I'm I'm starting off our conversation in an attempt, I suppose, to find some kind of silver lining here. You know, can we count the goodwill that such generosity will generate? I mean, do you have any reactions to this? Well, at a human level, that international response is very welcome. It's the sort of thing you often see in response to international disasters. From our side, you can think back to John Howard's response to the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004 or Julia Gillard's to the earthquake in Japan in 2011. Mm. So those gestures send messages of solidarity and they can have real and, in some cases, lasting impact. They also help countries to demonstrate reciprocity. And you can see that, I think, in the sort of things that PNG and Vanuatu Mm. uh, have said in their offers to help. But I do think the real international implications uh, go beyond that sort of immediate disaster relief. And what are you thinking of? For one thing, this is a big deal internationally. It's not just an Australian national crisis. It's a major global disaster Friends at the East Asia Forum pointed out this week that it's already 6.2 times bigger than the Brazilian fires of 2019, which attracted such a lot of uh, Mm. attention. The smoke, I know, from friends over there is drifting over New Zealand. So the world has noticed us. 
The stories have been on the front pages of most of the international newspapers. We have lots of debates about what Australia's soft power entails, but there's no question that an important part of it relates to international views of our unique landscape and environment and to the idea that we are, as Gareth Evans used to put it, responsible international citizens. But those overseas news stories have been accompanied by some quite savage criticism from pillars of the international business establishment, like the Financial Times, the New York Times and The Economist, about the government's approach to climate change and its handling of the crisis. So I think there is a reputational impact here. And elsewhere in the world, climate change policies continue to be a real impediment to the government's aspirations for the Pacific step up, as we saw in the criticism at the South Pacific Forum last year. I just noticed today, Frank Bainimarama, for example, writing in Australian newspapers saying that although Fijians stand with Australians in the disaster, the important thing is international action on climate change. Alan, when you talk about the reputational impact, is it in the form of the next time Australia is advocating for something on the international stage, everyone will immediately think about these bushfires and if nothing happens you know, into the future, Australia's sort of policies or lack thereof on climate change and that actually can undermine our diplomacy in other areas? Like, Are we tarred by this event or what do you mean by the reputational impact? Well, we're not tarred by the event at all. Everyone recognises, I think, that it's a grave disaster. But we will have a harder time arguing, as we did in Madrid, that we shouldn't be doing more on climate change policy nationally because people will be able to point to the direct impact in Australia. And as I said before, the the Australian impact also affects others in the world. Mm. Well, let's turn more to the politics here in Australia. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has come under probably the most criticism and pressure since he became Prime Minister for his handling of the crisis and that of his government. One dimension of the criticism, as you mentioned, Alan, is, of course, his centre-right coalition government's climate change policy. And you mentioned Madrid, you know, of course, at that conference in December, Australia was accused of, quote, cheating, which was a reference to the government's use of carryover credits from the expiring Kyoto Protocol to meet its 2030 emissions target that came out of the Paris Agreement. And further, it was named as one of a few countries that blocked a deal that would have further implemented Paris. And then if we think back to the United Nations meetings and the climate summit back in September... Australia was one of the countries pointedly not invited to speak because we were not bringing any new commitments to the table. And of course, Morrison himself famously brought a lump of coal into the Australian Parliament. Now, Alan, I guess my question is about sort of the relationship between domestic politics and and foreign policy. Do you think the pressure he's facing from his constituents can be a meaningful driver of change? But on the other side... Is the kind of political troubles that his government seem to be facing, could they potentially swamp and undermine his international agenda? Like, is there a precedent for leaders being inwardly focused because of these kinds of crises and that preventing them from pursuing their goals internationally? Oh, look, I think you can pretty safely say that domestic politics usually swamps the international agenda. doesn't matter particularly which government. And we saw it again when the PM postponed two high-profile visits to give the keynote address at the Ricina Dialogue and the other to Tokyo. 
These had obviously been planned as important pillars for the government's 2020 policy agenda, as well as, I suspect, sending signals to Beijing. And they were canned quickly after criticism of Morrison for taking that family holiday in Hawaii while the fires spread. So the India and Japan visits will no doubt go ahead, but the choreography won't be quite the same. In policy terms, you and I were talking to Gordon DeBrow recently about the reasons for Australia's failure to adopt a coherent agreed position on energy and climate change, and perhaps the internal political divisions that he pointed to will make it impossible for the government to move. But look, I, I just find it hard to imagine that the events of the past week, the huge areas of landscape destroyed, the death and destruction the unbreathable air, that these won't have an impact on public opinion more immediate than any of the data-rich reports from IPCC scientists. So one way or another, I expect there will be movement on the Australian domestic front on climate and energy issues and that this will generate more positive Australian engagement in the international debate than we saw at COP25. You sound as though you're sceptical, Darren. Uh I don't think so. I should note that that discussion with Gordon de Brower will come out as a podcast next week. Look, I'll have much more to say about the importance of domestic politics later in our discussion today. But for now, I'll just observe that I do put quite a bit of weight on the question of identity as explaining the government's obstinance on the issue. I think a sceptical position on climate change has become a core issue of identity politics in Australia in that if you are someone who wants to act on climate change, you know, at least as perceived by the other side, you're an inner-city greenie, lefty, who doesn't drive cars, who puts naive faith in renewable technologies that don't work when you need them to, and you're generally blind to the economic realities of the Australian economy. Now, that's a caricature, but that, I think, is the way that many on the right you know, see the issue as, as being core to, the, to who they are. And we know from research in the social sciences that it's very hard to break out of identity politics, but that a catastrophe like this is one way to do so. If you can transform the issue to one that's less about identity and one that's more about the safety and the welfare and even the passions of the Prime Minister's so-called quiet Australians, then maybe you can remove that identity element and get some forward progress. So. He is hoping. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen a number of quiet Australians uh, yelling loudly <laughs> over the past. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, well, let's move on to our second item, which is Iran. And on the 2nd of January this year, 2020, President Trump ordered a drone strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, who was in Iraq at the time. And he was one of the most senior officers in the Iranian military. Now, also killed in the strike was the head of a pro-Iranian paramilitary group in Iraq that's called Kateb Hezbollah, KH. Now, there were a series of events that immediately preceded this attack. KH had killed a U.S. contractor in Iraq a few days prior, which had then caused the U.S. to bomb some KH sites that killed 25 of the militia members. And then KH members in turn stormed the U.S. embassy grounds in Baghdad, holding portions of it for 24 hours. And then, of course, you have the assassination occurring. Now, this is a really big deal, and we could spend easily an entire episode talking about it since the US wasn't just taking out some terrorist leader, a non-state actor, but assassinating a senior military official of another state, probably an act of war. 
Now, I'll post links to a couple of good explainer podcasts from the US that I think go through this issue really well, one from Lawfare and the other one from Pod Save the World, for those who want more detail. But you know, my very crude summary of the arguments on each side of this question go as follows. Those who defend the action that say that Soleimani was just a very bad guy who had orchestrated the activities of all of Iran's proxies around the region and therefore was responsible for much death and destruction. And that in recent months, you know, Iranian-backed forces had been escalating their attacks on US interests in Iraq in particular, and it was time for a firm response. And it's argued that this kind of response will both set back Iran's operations around the region, but it will also deter future attacks. Now, the other side of the argument says, first, well, this was a very questionable legality, both under US law, under international law, and the fact that it happened on the sovereign territory of Iraq. And in all likelihood, it will do the exact opposite of deterring Iran. Instead, it will galvanize support for the Iranian government domestically and compel Iran to retaliate, which could lead then to an all-out war. From the Australian perspective, Prime Minister Morrison said he was not informed prior to the strikes that they were happening, and he has called for restraint and a de-escalation of tensions. The Australian embassy in Baghdad has evacuated non-essential personnel, and our Defence Force personnel have been on lockdown. Alan, what do you imagine the Australians are thinking right now? Well, look, I think the first thing is they'll be genuinely and rightly concerned by the real danger of action and reaction leading to war in the Middle East. As you noted, the assassination by the United States of such a senior figure in the Iranian regime on Iraqi soil Mm. could have really serious implications One thing they'll be reflecting on is how hard it is to refocus your defence and foreign policy on the Indo-Pacific when you have an ally who keeps dragging you capriciously back to the Middle East. They'll be thinking about how we manage the relationship with the United States. And remember, too, we've got a ship about to take off to to sail off to join the US task force in the Straits Mm. of Hormuz. So they might be asking why we might find ourselves through that operation close to war with Iran, a Shia state, when for Australia and Southeast Asia, the direct terrorist threat has come principally from Sunni groups such as al-Qaeda and ISIS and Salafi jihadist uh, preachers backed by Saudi Arabia. Mm. Well, it seems like the major risk here is unintended escalation. Iran feels the need to retaliate. But that in turn could cause Trump to strike back again. And if we are to believe his Twitter feed, he is not above ordering attacks such as targeting cultural sites that seem like pretty clear-cut cases of war crimes. So, Alan, how does one prevent unintended escalation in, in a situation like this? And what role, if anything, can Australia play? It's very hard to imagine there won't be an Iranian reaction after this. And after that, it's very hard to imagine Trump not reacting further, certainly not in an election year. Australia can't play a major role, but my own view is that the stakes are so serious that we can't simply sit back and observe. That means, I think, calling publicly, and you noted that the PM has actually been doing this for restraint and for the avoidance of escalation, It means doing what we can in Washington behind the scenes to urge caution. But even as I say that, you sort of realise that the problem in Washington now is that hardly anything goes on behind the scenes. It's all happening on the stage itself 
in this sort of largely improvised one-man show of President Trump. Mm. <laughs> That's very gloomy. I, I don't have anything to... Any silver lining for that, unfortunately. So on that on that happy note, let's turn to an equally happy subject, looking back on 2019. And so what we thought we'd do is frame our review simply around sort of a couple of simple questions. One, what each of us considers to be the word of the year. And secondly, you know, one of our trends of the year. So Alan, what would be your word of the year? Okay, well, my, my word of the year is sovereignty. We first noticed its appearance in uh, Scott Morrison's Lowy lecture after a long absence from Australian prime ministerial rhetoric. But then it started popping up in all sorts of other places and ministerial speeches, and it, it's uh, worth thinking about why. At one level, I guess it reflects the wider shift in the international zeitgeist, you know, America first, Brexit, taking back control, all the new nationalism in places ranging from Poland to India. It's, it's certainly a far cry from all those turn of the millennium speeches about globalisation and interconnectedness. I think in Australia, sovereignty got an added boost from the whole foreign interference debate and the, you know, the idea that we needed to be in control of the institutions of our democracy. And I think it also reflects, although policymakers probably wouldn't acknowledge this, increased caution about our American ally and a sense that we are more on our own. So in that sense, it seems to me to sum up 2019 mm, pretty it's well. It's an interesting point that it frames our relationship both with China via the foreign interference debate, but also with the United States and, 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 and President Trump. I think sovereignty can be viewed through both a positive and a negative lens. You know, as a positive, it can be seen as addressing a democratic deficit, the notion that political institutions are not sufficiently reflective or responsive to the interests of the general public. But of course, as a negative, it creates an every person for themselves type of mentality in the international system, which can significantly reduce the prospects of or for negotiation, for compromise and international cooperation on global challenges, indeed like climate change. So Alan, can a shift towards emphasising sovereignty become a positive or do you view it primarily through these negative lenses? Well, look, maybe it can be a positive, but you need leaders with a broader strategy than most of the sort of Nigel Farage-like proponents of the term we see at the moment. You know, the idea of national sovereignty was central to achieving the peace of Westphalia that ended the 30 years war, but our contemporary problems uh, sadly aren't those of the 17th century. The challenge is how to persuade ordinary people that international cooperation addresses the problems in their lives. You, you spoke about climate change. You're right. If we can't do that with climate change, it's hard to see where we can. Well, my word of the year is decoupling. Uh, and we have talked about decoupling a number of times in the podcast over the past 12 months. And there are any number of events I could refer to now that point to what many have described or are seeing as the unpicking of the complex and broad and deep supply chains that connect the economies of the United States and China. You know, just over the past few months, we've seen on the Chinese side a directive that all government computer software and hardware has to be domestically sourced within three years. And the idea that China is about to decouple from the United States in space with the completion of its own GPS satellite network. 
And on the US side, of course, we have the creation of the entity list that allows the US government to restrict the export of sensitive technologies and components to any entity, in particular Chinese companies, that are seen as threatening the US national security interests. Now, in October, this included eight companies from China that were seen as being complicit in human rights violations in China's Xinjiang province. So that being seen as a national security issue. Now, having said all that, I'm personally sceptical that the extent of decoupling will be as great as many imagine, simply because of the depth of the integration already between the two economies, and that I think undoing this would be unacceptably costly for both sides. But what's important, I think, is that one of the core foundations of the international order, open trade and commerce, is now not seen as a clear and unabashed good or not even a source of uneven benefits, which is the inequality critique. Instead, it's perceived as a source of insecurity, a source of fear. Both the US and Chinese governments perceive that, that aspects of their economic interdependence with each other undermine their national security. These feelings aren't that different to the fears a country feels when its neighbour builds a large army. So decoupling is one of the actions that both sides are taking in response to these feelings of insecurity. And if Australia or anyone else wants to arrest the decoupling phenomenon, they will need to work out some way of making each side feel less insecure. But I, I don't know how you do that. How do you convince the Chinese government that the US government, whether Donald Trump today or a president in the future, won't suddenly slap on export controls on a critical component like semiconductors? which happened to the company ZTE in 2018, which crippled the company in a matter of weeks before the restrictions were withdrawn? Or how do you convince the United States that the Chinese companies will not be used by the Chinese government for nefarious ends, which is one of the major concerns regarding Huawei's 5G technology? If you can't assuage these fears, then the governments are going to act to undo that interdependence as much as they can. So decoupling will continue. And it makes me think back to the Cold War and the mutual insecurities caused by nuclear weapons and other weapon systems. So the question I'm asking myself is, you know, what is the equivalent of an arms control treaty in the trade and technology space? So, Darren, what are, the, what are the implications of all this for the way we set industrial standards? Are we heading for a world which is just not interoperable? I wouldn't think that we will see a winding back of current standards. So to the extent that we have interoperability in existing technology, it would be too costly for either side to undo that. But I think for future technologies, China has a large enough market, and especially once you include the Belt and Road partner countries, that if there are alternative standards in new technologies that do emerge in terms of technical specifications, then yes, you could have a bifurcation of the system. And I think the major force that would prevent that is companies on each side. So if you have a Chinese system and a Western system, if those companies continue to have incentives to want to sell their goods across the divide, and that will be dependent upon policies of national governments. So that would be the force that tries to bring them together but while you have very nervous, fearful governments, I do think that, yes, that kind of bifurcation is possible. So, Alan, let's then turn to a trend. What, what trend in 2019 stood out to you? Well, that question of yours about what's the equivalent of an arms control treaty in the trade and technology space leads well into my trend for 2019. The problem at the moment is that you can't even get an arms control treaty in the arms control space. 
So, look, I, I think the most notable thing about 2019 was the decline in the authority of all the institutions of the rules-based order and the absence of any real effort to use collective action to address new sets of global challenges. With the existing institutions, and we talked about this on the podcast during the year, we saw the effective collapse of the WTO's appellate structure and the failure of CAP25 in Madrid. We saw a US withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, from the INF treaty, and we got no progress in any of the new areas of technology, AI, cyber, lethal autonomous weapons. So I keep thinking of the lines from the Australian 2017 foreign policy white paper. I'm quoting them here. We will act on the principle that Australia will be safer and more prosperous in a global order based on agreed rules rather than one based on the exercise of power alone. In an interdependent world, a system that promotes collective responses to problems that cannot be solved by countries acting by themselves best serves our interests. Now, the problem is that that sort of world looks further away at the beginning of 2020 than it did at the end of 2017. Mm -hmm. So what's your 2019 trend? Well, it gets back to one of the points you made earlier about the need to persuade ordinary people that international cooperation is important and affects their lives. But I can't pin in the trend down with precision. You know, as our regular listeners will know, I'm, I'm obsessed with the domestic politics of foreign policy in democracies especially. And this notion of the, the political foundations of support for the rules-based order, as you described, Alan. There are three trends in domestic politics that jumped out to me. And these don't necessarily all come from 2019, but my thinking has crystallised on them this year. The first is the emergence of a new cleavage defining national politics across the world, and in particular in the West. And if you think of the prevailing cleavages from the 20th century being primarily about left versus right, you know, some kind of class divide between labour and capital. I see the new cleavage as being one between open and closed, you know, between globalists and nationalists, if, if you want. So that's point one. Well, the second trend is the relative success of the right of the political spectrum, and in many cases the far right, in leveraging this new cleavage to its political advantage. And that's principally being done through the issue of immigration, but also to some extent culture wars, and in Australia I think you could probably add climate change to that. And this helped propel Trump to victory, it helped propel the Leave campaign in the UK, and it's obviously fueled the, the rise of far-right parties across Europe. On the other side of politics, establishment left-leaning parties are still trying to land on a coherent narrative. That's of course true for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, the Democrats in the US, but even if you look to the far-left parties, the left populist parties in places like Greece and Italy and Spain, all of those have actually been declining this past year in strength. You know, in Greece, the, the left-leaning party lost power, and in, in Spain, the, the left party has lost seats in the most recent elections, and many think that the, the five-star movement in, in Italy is also in trouble. And so the, the issues that the left should be mobilising around. Inequality and, you know, and transnational corporate greed is one, and uh, corruption. And of course, climate change, for some reason, haven't been able to galvanise at least consistently durable winning coalitions the way that immigration and culture wars have on the right. So that's point two. And then point three is that 
you know, just domestic politics is becoming so much more consequential, it feels like, for international politics. Trump's victory was founded upon the factors I've just been mentioning, but it has been hugely consequential for the rules-based order. Brexit is harmful for the European project. And you can imagine what would happen if Marine Le Pen of the National Front in France wins the presidency, or you know when Matteo Salvini's League party takes power in Italy, as I imagine it will eventually. So I think elections matter, and they matter in ways that are consequential for Australia. And if we turn to our region, it's a completely different track, but election results have been having important geopolitical implications when it comes to China. We've had several elections where governments perceived as being too close to China have been ejected by voters, while other leaders have been elected that have been willing to get much closer to Beijing and or oppose the United States. So the point of all of these points together, I think, is that policy decisions that we see made by nation states ultimately have their genesis in a story about elections and domestic politics. And so I think, and I'm I'm repeating things I've said previously, that if we in Australia want to preserve an open rules-based system and a favourable balance of power geopolitically that suits our interests, we need to be thinking about those factors, those domestic factors in formulating our foreign policy and engagement strategies. That's interesting. Do you want to elaborate that? <laughs> well, I, I, look, you know, the question I think is, what does a foreign policy that works for the middle class look like? You know, as you said, Alan, how do we persuade people that international cooperation is important for their lives? And an old mentor of mine in the United States, whose name is Salman Ahmed, who now works at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, has been working on this exact issue in the US. And he has written two reports so far, and I'll post links to them in the show notes, that go out to the states of Ohio and Colorado and ask voters and different community groups what kind of foreign policy is important to you. And the bottom line from these reports, as I understand them, is that you just simply cannot sell the benefits of foreign policy at the international level. You can't talk about abstract concepts. You have to bring them back to the lives of ordinary people. And this, I guess, brings us back to our debate about the PM's lobby lecture. You know, my argument that leaders need to be seen to be paying more heed to regular concerns, maybe even parochial concerns. And without respecting that, you won't find a way of of advancing international cooperation. Even in doing so, you make it um, much harder. So, no, I don't have answers, Alan. I just think that's that's where we need to be doing the work. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And finally, let's look forward to 2020, Alan. Like, what are you paying most attention to for uh, for the coming year? Oh, well, look, I'm afraid that from Australia's perspective, there will continue to be nothing more important than the way we manage the complex relationships with Washington and Beijing. Certainly in, in foreign policy, I can't think of anything harder for the Morrison government to bring off. As we've noted uh, plenty of times before, the problems for us stem from the fact that Australian and American interests in China differ. I'm not just talking about our economic interests, although given the other headwinds, as the Treasurer has called them, in the international economy and in Australia's own economic outlook, uh, these will be pressing. But we also have different interests to manage in our relationship with China's neighbours. Questions of whether the Prime Minister is invited to visit Beijing will continue to attract attention. I think Morrison's position on that is sensible. He says he's happy to talk, but it's up to the Chinese to decide to issue an invitation, and he's relaxed about the matter. That's as it should be. The precise form that overseas visits take can certainly be used for diplomatic rewards or 
to uh, signal attitudes. You just have to uh, look at Morrison's state visit to Washington to see that. But it's at least as much in China's interests as Australia's to maintain the normal routines of diplomatic engagement, I think. So I was encouraged that in a press conference, this was unusual, on 20 December, the Chinese ambassador in Canberra, Cheng Jingye, uh, held out hopes of more high-level visits. So, you know, I, I very much hope that we'll see a return to such routine activities. Of course, there will be differences between the two sides, but there will also be important areas where we should work together. And the whole point of foreign policy is to manage differences and seek to build cooperation where it serves mutual interests. So what are you going to be paying attention to, Darren? Before I get there, Alan, is there a gesture that the government could make to sort of grease the wheels of diplomacy and facilitate a visit? I mean, clearly the Chinese would like us to make some large policy concessions that we're not going to make. Um, But a lot of the problem in the past has been bad messaging and, and clumsy execution. Mm. Is there something, is there a low-hanging fruit here or we just sort of need to wait out and, and be disciplined in, in how we, in, you know, talk about China and how our leaders engage with China and, and eventually in the fullness of time, things will return to a point where the Chinese feel comfortable, you know, to invite us without it being seen as a, a major concession? Well, look, I, I agree with you that, I mean, the Chinese would obviously like us to uh, drop the 5G ban on yeah. Huawei. And that, as an example, yeah. That's not going to happen. But I, I do think there are genuine areas that we can work together on regional infrastructure. So the Japanese have found ways, for example, of dealing with uh, Belt and Road in a way that serves both Japanese and Chinese interests. And I certainly think that there's something in that area that would be uh, worth playing with. Mm, okay. Well, my 2020 event also relates to, to one of the great powers, of course, being the United States and the upcoming election. We have the Iowa caucuses happening next month, which will kick off this marathon election season. Now, as we have dis- discussed exhaustively um, over the past year, you know, not all but many of the most concerning things happening in the world are concerning in part because of either a lack of US leadership um, or worse, the deliberate sabotage of the Trump administration. And much of this damage will be long-term, But if Trump loses this year, I think the bleeding can be stanched and some kind of healing process can begin. First, I would hope with Washington's closest allies and partners, but then with a a more coherent and and, and focused set of policies on China, on the Middle East, on North Korea, the list goes on. But if Trump wins again, then the risks of a truly catastrophic event will continue to rise, and they've risen pretty sharply in the last week with this Iran news. And I think the assumptions that are being tentatively made in the rest of the world, including in Australia, regarding the absence of a positive US presence that could endure into the future will only harden. And I think that will have unpredictable consequences that will probably not be in Australia's interests. But I don't see the US as being in terminal decline. I don't don't think the news is all bad. President Trump was elected through a fairly remarkable confluence of events. The 2018 midterm elections were positive. Trends in state politics are pointing to a, a more of a rejection of Trumpian politics. And I do think that to some extent there have been institutional roadblocks that have thwarted Trump's agenda and or at least exposed the true nature of the man and his administration. That gives rise to my hope that while his support base is substantial, that what he represents and the politics he represents is not the reality of the United States. 
But I think you know, our American friends have no excuses now. They've seen what he is. And if they vote for him again, then we should have no doubt about the direction the country is going in and what that could mean for the international system. But it's not just one side. This is why the Democratic primaries are so important, because that party is also not united as a party. If you look at the top four candidates, you've got two centrists and two who are on the more to the left. And so Warren and Sanders are on the left side and, and Biden and Buttigieg in the center. And so that that contest is still to occur. And whoever wins, I genuinely hope that they find a way of bringing the party together, but also then appealing to those infamous you know, Obama-Trump voters. And I think that has to be moving to the centre as much as possible. I, I agree with you absolutely about the uh, long-term consequences of this particular US election. What would the ANZUS alliance be after eight years of Trump? Could, could it possibly sustain the same deep bipartisan support in Australia that it's traditionally held? I'm really doubtful of that. Mm, yeah. Well, our final segment, reading, listening and watching, the best of 2019. Alan, what's your recommendation? Well, look, for me, the best foreign policy book of 2019 was Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century by the fine American reporter and writer George Packer. This is an unusual biography because it's about a man who never quite made it to the top of his profession. Holbrook began as an officer in the US State Department during the Vietnam War, and he had a long and distinguished career, mostly in democratic administrations. He was best known for his role in negotiating the 1995 Dayton Accords, which resolved the first bout of fighting in Bosnia and Herzegovina and later for his role as Obama's special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. But he never made it to the position to which he always aspired, which was Secretary of State, and that at a time when other lesser figures, and you can think of people like Warren Christopher for the Clinton administration, got there. And it's the reason for that failure, the enormous ego, the overwhelming ambition, the slights to others, the complex relationships with several women that make this such a readable book. Packer knew Holbrook and he admires him, but he certainly portrays him in all his human complexity. There's a lot in here for the policy wonks as well. Uh, some of our listeners may have read his book, The Assassin's Gate, which is a terrific history of US involvement in the Iraq war. Packer places Holbrook as one of the last exemplars and this goes back to what we were just talking about, Darren, one of the last exemplars of a vision of American power in the world that began after World War II with leaders like Atchison, Kennan, Marshall and Harriman. These were diplomats and politicians, he writes, who built structures of international order that would endure three generations longer than anything ever lasts and that are only now turning to rubble and to which Holbrook came too late. Just one final point relevant to Australia. As someone who was heavily involved in the Canberra discussions about Afghanistan and Pakistan during the period Holbrook was the US representative, and you, you remember we were talking about this Duncan Lewis a few weeks ago, the book is a revelation of how much was going on in debates inside Washington that we didn't know about. Now, I'm, I'm not complaining about that. There's no reason for the US administration to lay its internal debates open to mid-level allies. 
But as we just saw again in our ignorance of the US assassination of Suleiman, Australia needs to be constantly alert to the changing dynamics of American policy. So what about you, Darren? Well, one of my New Year's resolutions, Alan, is to try to read more books for pleasure. With two small children, I tend to only read books on vacations, and so I don't haven't read nearly enough to be able to give a best book for the year. So what I actually want to recommend is what I would have recommended in an ordinary episode, but it happens to be, I think, the best television show of the year, which is The Mandalorian. And after what, for me, was a very disappointing end to the Star Wars saga, The Rise of Skywalker movie, Just a week later, I I watched the final episode of this new Disney TV uh, series, which is premiering on the Disney um, streaming service. So it was the eighth of the series, the final episode of the first season. And it was, you know, almost perfect television. You know, really brought a great end to the the series. The, The episodes are only about 35, 40 minutes long. So it's a quick watch. But I think... As a a lifelong Star Wars fan, it offered a vision of the Star Wars extended universe, I guess you'd call it, that could both pay homage to the science fiction and fantasy elements, to the politics, but also tell a really affecting human story. And so I'm not pessimistic about the future of Star Wars, notwithstanding that we should expect Disney to want to make a lot of money off it into the future, that good, good content can and will come out, and I'm very excited for season two. Have you watched it? Uh, no, I, I haven't. I don't think we get Disney. Disney Plus is available in, in Australia, so you can uh, subscribe. You get, a, get a trial subscription if you can and just binge watch it. It'll only take you, you know, three hours. It's good to end the podcast on a, an optimistic note like that, uh, Darren. <laughs> Always we can escape to a universe far, far away. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. Thanks to AAA intern Isabel Hancock for research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon.